Well, welcome. Welcome to our webinar this morning <clears throat> on the illusion of control, why financial crises happen and what we can and can't do about it. Um, I'm delighted to uh, welcome Dr. John Danielson um, from the London School of Economics, um, from the Department of Finance, uh, Director of the Systemic Risk Centre at LSE, um, whose research interests um, include financial stability, systemic risk, uh, extreme market movements, uh, and other exciting things. Um, for those of you who um, don't know me yet, I'm Mike Wardle. I'm uh, Director and Head of Indices uh, at the ZN Group. Um, and my task this morning is uh, to chair the event, but very much to get out of the way uh, so we can listen to John. Uh, just a brief word uh, to thank our sponsors um, who enable us to run this series of webinars ranging really widely across economics, finance, uh, technology and science. Um, and it's um, great that we have their support. On the programme today, um, as I say, my job is to get out of the way. We have the keynote presentation from uh, Dr. John Danielson, and then there'll be a Q&A session towards the end. Um, for those of you who've used GoToWebinar before, you know the drill. For those of you who haven't, you'll see on the dashboard on your screen uh, a question tab uh, where you can type in questions and comments. And you can do that at any point during the webinar, so please um, get your questions in um, as you think of them. Uh, rather than leaving it all to the end. The session is being recorded, um, so there's an opportunity for you to go back and watch again or to share um, the presentation with uh, friends and colleagues who you think will find it interesting, and, and the recording will be posted uh, on our, our website uh, within about 48 hours of the uh, session ending. Um, last thing to say is if you do ask a question, uh, we will pass on uh, contact details to John so that if there's um, need for further discussion or there's further interest, um, that can be followed up. Um, so without any further ado, um, it's my job now to hand over to John Danielson. As I say, John is the uh, Director of the Systemic Risk Centre at LSE um, and has thought really quite deeply. Um, about uh, issues of regulation um, and we'll be talking about the illusion of control which is of course also the title of John's latest book. Um, I'm sure he'll want to say a few words about that as we go forward. Uh, John over to you. Thank you so much Mike and I, I do hope that you all see my slides and if not do let me know. I'm one of these people who have I have one foot in the policy world applications and the other very very firmly planted in the in the quant world so I write I do quant models and I do policy and this book came about because I've been thinking about when do these two worlds meet what happens so people who live in the quant world tend to think mathematics and models and those in policy maybe tend to ignore the technicalities behind what they're working on and the book is really about how to bring that together. Now, when initially conceived of the seminar, and I thought it would be fairly abstract and long-term, but then a crisis happened. And this crisis should not have happened because we were told by the financial authorities, and this quote from Mark Carney is one of many, over the past decade, G20 financial reforms have fixed the fault lines that caused the global financial crisis. So what went wrong? And that what went wrong is really the idea behind my book, The Illusion of Control. And I take this all back to what we call the philosophy of modern regulations. So if you, if you think about what regulations are meant to achieve at their core, the idea is that the authorities and the banks can identify and measure all important risk, and then the government and the banks can then 
use that to find the appropriate level of risk, tune up risk if need to, or scale it down if it's, things are too hot. Just like the thermostat in the risk manager's office allows them to keep the temperature steady 22 degrees. And key to this is an accurate measurement of financial risk. I don't think you can do that. And that takes me to the trilemma of financial policy. The trilemma of financial policy and what the authorities want to achieve at the same time is the economy is supposed to grow, or at least we have to avoid recessions. Inflation has to be close to its target and financial stability must be high. And there are plenty of statements from the authorities. Christine Lagarde is just one of many that says you can have it all. And that's where I take that's what I take an issue with. Now, in the years or the decades and a half after 2008, it appeared like you could really have it all. All objectives were in sync. Easy money helped growth. Inflation behaved and stability appeared high. That was, in my view, an illusion. The reason is that the easy money, the lax monetary policy, made the financial system dependent on low interest rates. And we see the consequences of that with the Silicon Valley Bank and many others at the moment. But the necessary condition for that policy to be sensible is that inflation would never go up. So therefore, we can rephrase it as a bet on low inflation and low interest rates lasting forever. And the longer interest, the monetary policy was lax, the higher systemic financial risk became, the chance of a major crisis. Now, that was not supposed to be a problem because regulations, especially the macroprudential types, would contain that systemic risk. But why then do I think this financial policy cakeism doesn't work? Well, first of all, any policy of growth or no recessions, by definition, must be inflationary and must erode financial stability. When inflation is at its target, that is recessionary because the cost of funding is high and it increases systemic risk. High financial stability requires high levels of capital increasing the cost of lending, hurting growth. All of this was foreseeable and all of this was avoidable. The reason or the benefit of why we keep the regulators and the monetary authority in the same institution like the Bank of England or the European Central Bank. Now, one first ingredient in the illusion of control is complexity. The financial system, I think, is in effect infinitely complex. It is the most complex thing ever created by human beings. And even if the financial authorities can find a lot of risk to control, there is simply an infinite scope for that risk to emerge elsewhere. And the regulators can only patrol a small part of an infinitely complex system. And if you try to identify and manage all of that risk, the regulations end up being so onerous and so costly that the banks cease functioning and we end up there. And, and, and the two countries are managed without a financial system is Cuba and North Korea are not exactly good examples of the way forward. 
The second part of the illusion of control is risk measurement. What I call, you need the riskometer. The riskometer is sort of a mythical measuring device that you plunge deep into the city of London and out pops an accurate measurement of financial risk, which then you can use to fine tune the risk in the system. I think the riskometer is a myth and you can't measure most financial risk with any degree of accuracy. The reason is that risk can only be inferred by the imprint it leaves on the world around it, such as price fluctuations. To make sense of that, you need a model. And there are infinite number of models, all give, give, delivering an infinite number of risk measurements, and you can't figure out beforehand which model is the best. And adding to that is the fact that risk is very dependent on the individual and the organization. Risk that works for me might not be the risk you care about. So a one-size-fits-all riskometer, which is what we tend to get, is basically not fit for purpose. Furthermore, the type of risk you measure easily, day-to-day -day risk, is the risk that is the least important for the vast majority of us. What we care about is extreme risk. And what drives extreme financial risk? Politics. 2008, the pending crisis in Italy, Brexit, Trump, Ukraine, Venezuela, etc., etc. The reason is that politics allows that risk to emerge and politics prevents timely solutions. But then you run into the question of how do you measure that political risk? And for the financial authorities, how do you regulate it? Because the Bank of England cannot regulate what happens in Westminster. Well, they can't regulate the prime minister, certainly. And then we have the question of what drives risk. The global crisis in 2008 did not happen because of anything that happened that year. The decisions that culminated in the crisis were made years earlier. When all the signs told us the world is safe, the authorities, the private sector said, okay, we are safe, let's take more risk. In the process for getting Hyman Minsky's dictum, stability is destabilizing. If you perceive the world as stable, you behave in a way that makes it unstable by taking more risk. Or more succinctly phrased by Chuck Prince, the former CEO of Citibank, who said, when the music is playing, you've got to get up and dance. And risk comes in many forms. If this afternoon, by some chance, the US stock market goes down by 200 billion, well, most, almost nobody will care. In 2008, potential and not even realized subprime losses of less than 200 billion and a global crisis happened. The reason is the risk we know we prepare for, the known unknowns in the phrasing of Donald Rumsfeld, the unknown, unknown risk is the most damaging, but you can't measure that. All you end up is measuring the known, unknown risk. And let's do some risk management and see what happens. So imagine the red line is the distribution of outcomes in the world, ranging from bad to good. And we don't like that. We want a fat upper tail, meaning bigger upside and a lower Thinner lower tail, meaning less downside. 
And the risk management is meant to help us transit from the red to the blue. The problem is data lives in the middle, but what we care about lives in the tails. So you end up measuring the part of the distribution of outcomes you care don't really care about all that much. You model that, you measure it, you quantify it, you plug it into dashboards. Meanwhile, the risk we care about, the extremes on the up and down side, well, we have no, we have little information or little data, and it's very hard to exercise control in that part of the distribution. And then that begs the question, what should we really do about it all? And the crisis we have now, the Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse and everything else happening in the market gives us a really good sense of where we are traveling. If you, list, if you follow what the financial authorities are saying at the moment, that what that suggests is a tightening of current regulations. Basically what they're saying is, Ah, things slipped through. We weren't strict enough. So I, so my guess is that what we will be will be seeing in the years to come is more intrusive regulations, more tightening of regulations. I think ultimately that will be recessionary because it makes the cost of lending much higher. It will increase systemic risk because it makes the institutions of the financial system much more similar as pro-cyclical. Now, there are plenty of alternatives and I'm only listing three here. Well, we could leave finance to the market. Problem is, if you just let, treat financial firms like any other firm, when the next crisis happens, the one will happen, then the government will be forced to react and it's better to be prepared. Political reality prevents a pure market solution. Or a different alternative is we could have 100% reserves for deposits and maturity match assets to liabilities. That is very expensive and recessionary, so I would not want to go down that road. We could look at technology, central bank digital currencies, decentralized finance, Web3 and the like, promising certainly but it's not going to happen tomorrow. It will take years, most likely decades, before it leaves in a serious imprint. So while a, a long-term solution, it's not a short-term solution. The way I see the problem is what we should focus on is shock absorption, not buffers. The way regulations see the financial system is it sees it wants to have buffers against shocks, capital buffers, liquidity buffers, and the like. And the size of those buffers are, are so often calculated by risk measurements of the type I've been discussing. So risk feeds into buffers. And what is happening at the moment is, ah, the buffers weren't too high and the risk wasn't calculated incorrectly. Let's measure more risk and increase the size of the buffers. I think that is very costly. And in fact, no buffer can ever protect against large shocks. So when you see some of the proposals that say, we have to make the bank super safe by having a lot of capital, 
that disregards the cost of financial services and disregards the damage that would cause to the economy. My preference is to do something different. My preference is to take advantage of the inherent shock absorption capacity of the system. And I think the financial system is very, very good at absorbing shocks. So we don't want, what we don't want is regulations at the moment that work as a shock amplifier. The reason why they work as a shock amplifier is they force banks to see the world in the same way and react to the world in the same way by risk measurements and capital buffers. Instead, if you can, if you can increase shock absorption, what you want is if a shock comes along, I buy and Mike sells in aggregate, creating a random noise instead of what happens now, which is you get the vicious feedback loops between selling and a deteriorating financial positions. And how can you get more shock absorption? I think what we should aim for is diversity in the type of financial institutions we have. The more different the institutions, the banks and everybody else that makes up the system, the more different they are, the higher the shock absorption capacity of the system, because some will sell, others will buy, the third group will sit on his, on his hands and do nothing, and therefore we don't get a vicious amplification of shocks, but also allows us to tailor financial services much better to the user instead of all size fits all, which is much more so common today. It will lower the cost of regulating. We don't need to spend so much money on monitoring and controlling and capital. And I think such diversity of institutions is a win-win-win solution. We get more growth, better deal for the bank's clients, and we get more financial stability. And why don't we get there? Well, we have to start by looking at how the financial authorities could achieve it. I think it's actually quite straightforward. You tailor financial regulations to the type of financial institutions instead of having one set of regulations that apply to all. We try to eliminate as many barriers to new entrants as possible, especially those with new business models. And that means embracing financial technology and DeFi. And that means that usually shadow banking is a friend, not the enemy. And I do recognize the cases where shadow banking is an enemy, but is also quite often a friend, and especially here in Europe. Now, what gets in the way? One is just plain conservatism. We, pref we prefer what we know, the system we are familiar with, instead of the new. Risk aversion, the regulators are not rewarded for success. When things go well, they get no bonuses, but when things go wrong, they get blamed for failure, which makes the regulators excessively risk averse. Local maximization meaning, if a big crisis happens, we can say, oh, everybody lost money, nothing to do with me. So low collective failure covers individual failure, and the existing setup allows that. And finally, and not the least, lobbying, because the incumbent financial institutions prefer the setup we have instead of having more competition from new entrants. 
when I enter into discussions about this, it's often phrased as, so I came to the quote from the, the Simpsons, will somebody please think of the children? Meaning something new can possibly, might cause harm, therefore it must be banned. It's the potential harm of new ideas is weighs so strongly on the minds of so many and that prevents uh, all the innovation we need. And ultimately, that is at the core of the illusion, illusion of control. We think we have created a financial system and regulatory structure that protects us, but it is illusionary and all it accomplishes is laying the seeds of, of, a, of a future financial crisis and in the meantime, holding back on economic growth, which then feeds into all sorts of social problems we can discuss in the Q&A. Thank you so much, and I hand it back to you. Well, thank you very much indeed, John. Um, a really interesting overview of um, how, we, how we've got to where we are, um, but also, thankfully, some thoughts about how <coughs> things might, uh, might progress. Um, so we're open for uh, questions, comments, um, and answers. And I just wonder, first of all, John, whether you could tell us, um, is this debate happening among central bankers? Um, you know, are they grasping this? Are they taking um, some of the concepts you've talked about um, seriously, do you think? Well, the answer is yes and no. I mean, I have presented these ideas in several central banks. I'm due to go to one cent European central bank next month to discuss these ideas. And I certainly had, and I did the same presentation to essentially a group of European central bankers. I think this debate is happening, and quite a lot of a lot of people within the authorities are aware of the pros and cons. But the politics of this is so difficult that this almost gets in the way. So I think the discussion is happening, but the direction of travel is still in the wrong direction. Okay. Um, Dan Feeney uh, in the audience has asked you know, whether the fiat-backed monetary system can survive decentralization and self-sovereign um, crypto much longer. He comments that we seem to only increase the debt burden and devalue real money ever more. Um, so is the fiat-based monetary system under threat? I don't think so. I mean, I'm, I'm Mike, I'm happy to take a bet with you both that in 20 years, the fiat monetary system will still be with us. I, however, I do hope that the, we will see more central bank digital currencies and the like, and more technology. But cryptocurrencies, which is the alternative, I wrote a, I wrote a blog piece a, piece a few months ago saying that crypto is now entering its final terminal phase. So I think crypto is, has only one way to go, that is down. And the alternative to crypto is fiat money. So I think it will stay with us for a very long time. Happy to take the bet. <laughs> um, and you mentioned CT, <coughs> CBDCs. Richard Sage has asked, um, you know, his, his prediction is that um, central bank digital currencies will cause at least one crisis. You know, it'll be the next Silicon Bank Valley or Credit Suisse once CB, CBDCs exist. Because, because people will move deposits from banks to into um, central bank currencies. Um, and else, how will central banks be able to regulate anything? Because their reputation will be shot. I think that's excessively pessimistic, but I want to start to take the issue, what is wrong with crisis? 
I mean, a financial system that does not have a crisis is not a financial system that works properly. Korea, North Korea and Cuba, they avoid financial crisis and they're not an attractive choice. I think a financial crisis, they are the unfortunate but, but symptom of a vibrant capitalist economy and therefore we should not try to squeeze them all out. And there have been, I mean, this country is the most crisis prone country in the OECD with one every 17 years on average and we still sort of manage fine. So even if there will be a CBDC crisis, and I'm sure there will be one, I think we'll survive it quite happily. However, a CBDC where all the money is on a blockchain or a, or some other database at the Bank of England is not the best execution of this. But the central banks and everybody is a, is a life to this. So I hope there are directions of travel in CBDCs that are more fruitful than others. Yes, I mean, it certainly will change the way that banking happens. Uh, we just don't know quite yet how, how that change will, will be affected. Um, Hugh Purse has asked whether you can expand a bit on your thoughts on shadow banking. Um, you know, how far would you go um, in making shadow banking your friend? So let's take the bad side of shadow banking first and then the good side. If you take China, shadow banking is bad tend to be bad because it's basically an unregulated alternative to the existing banking system. Same as the money market mutual funds in the United States, that's the bad side of shadow banking. But let's take the good side. In the United States, only one third of all financial intermediation happens via banks. Two thirds happens outside of the banking system. And I think that, that is key to both the economic success of the United States and how quickly it recovered from the crisis in 2008. In this country, it's hard to combine numbers, but the banking system has about 82, 83% of financial intermediation. In Germany, it's 92, Spain 96, and same in Japan and Korea. That, those two thirds in the United States, that is the shadow banking system. The, the, and I think the shadow banking system that provides an alternative ways of doing financial intermediation of the type you see in the United States can only be welcomed. So like so many things in life that are good and bad sides to it, but by and large, at least here, here in Europe, shadow banking meaning alternatives to the existing banking setup we have can only be welcomed. And, and Clive Bollins extended that by asking, you know, what, type, what types of diversity um, should be added? You know, which would you recommend? I mean, maybe taking the American model, uh, what kind of institutions and, and systems do we need to be developing in Europe? I, I, I want to please Joseph Schumpeter and say, I like creative destruction, but I'm not going to tell you what form it should take. <laughs> I am not, I don't, I mean, I do not want to get into the game of predicting what sort of financial institutions we should have. I am not a fan of industrial policy, and that is industrial policy. I think the government should create the conditions for smart people with great ideas to set up shop and, and, and run the businesses. That's the job of government not to predict. And as, as an academic, I'm not the type of person I'm not going to get into the prediction game. However, I'm interested in the conditions that allow that to happen. Thank you. And uh, Clive, um, it looks like you're going to have to come up with very bright ideas for yourself um, as to how to diversify uh, the financial system. Um, Michael D'Souza has um, put a 
made a comment really on the question. Um, talking about Milton Friedman and his view that the money supply is the one and only cause of inflation and suggesting that the only way to control that is to tie the salaries of central bankers to inflation for every 1% rise in inflation. You know, their the salary is deducted by 5% um, or rewarded um, the other way around. Um, have you any thoughts about how we um, put risk and reward into the central banking system? So I have, so in the book, I have a great example on exactly sort of this sort of idea. So let's take, I want to make a detail to air traffic control. In China, the distance between aircraft is about four miles in the airspace. In this country, Europe and the United States, less than two miles. And why is that? The Chinese air, tra air traffic controllers get punished if something goes wrong, but don't get rewarded if something goes well. And therefore, they just increase the distances between airplanes to, to protect themselves. Completely logical. In this country, Europe and the United States, if the tra air traffic flows well, they get bonuses. If a mistake happens and they, re and they report it immediately, they are not punished. So they have a very good, sensible risk culture. The, the, the setup at the moment in the central banks is that they take, they get no, they, they can only be blamed if things go, go wrong. They don't get encouraged. They don't get bonuses when things go well. So in the book, I advance the idea, and I'm certainly in favor of the central bankers getting bonuses when things go well. And I think that might even attract a better quality of central bankers if they get properly rewarded for doing a job. If we if if we, we remunerate people in the financial in the private sector so much, why not do the same with the people working in the central banks? So if if if, if you give them proper proper remuneration and incentivize them properly, I think we would get much better at hitting, hitting both the targets. And maybe then somebody 10 years ago would have asked the question, does it make sense to do all this QE and low interest rates? And might there be adverse consequences? So I think, so I'm very much in favor of the idea. Super. And I do remember once being um, present at a talk given by the chief uh, pilot of British Airways, um, talking about safety and risk, and someone asked him, you know, why is it that the you know, air industry is so focused on uh, safety? And he said, well, the pilot's always first on the scene and, and, and when there's a crash. Um, <laughs> but really, you know, it, it was a, it was a, a, a tiny reminder. Uh, Richard Sage has come back to ask um, about shadow banking again. Um, and his comment is that that's fine as long as the people involved take losses when they happen. Uh, the moral hazard, of course, is that participants takes benefits, take the benefits, but when it goes wrong, the government uh, ensures them after the fact, i.e. You know, we all pay um, for when things go wrong. Um, what, where do you think that the, the, the balance of arguments sits? Now, there are two, there are two sides to that. So the, the, the moral hazard problem really occurs because if the banks are so important, if you have a if you have a large bank of the size of JP Morgan or HSBC, they just can't be allowed to fail because it will be so disastrous. And that means they have all the incentives in the world to misbehave. And that is at the root of moral hazard. You can't really punish, if you can't punish people, then they will they will misbehave. That's human nature. Uh, if you have smaller banks, more diverse banks, and crucially not systemically important banks then you can allow to punish both the shareholders and the creditors much more severely. So I think my, my idea of diversity or the shadow banking 
is that sort of system allows for much better alignment of interest between the risk takers and society. And that is what you see in the US in the shadow banking sector, which is two thirds of the financial system, is that th they take the downside and they get the upside. And mm -hmm. that's exactly the type of system I would like. For the problem is with banks are involved with absolutely everything. You can't do that. So if you move away from this bank-based model into the more div diversified model I'm proposing, you get that's exactly what you get. You don't socialize losses and privatize gain. Thank you uh, for that. Um, I'm just wondering um, what advice you'd have for an emerging economy. Um, you know, I do a lot of work with people across the world who are developing financial systems. Um, you know, how can they avoid um, the problems which you've identified um, with more developed economies? Oftentimes, when I talk to someone in emerging market countries, I mean, it depends on the country, but quite often the central bank and the regulators are some of the best staffed institutions of the economy. And in the global crisis in 2008, that crisis was a Western American crisis. It was a first world rich countries crisis. I had a chat with more than one governor of, of a developing country, central bank, was laughing. I think the German word was the Schadenfreude. They said, we would never have done this. So I think quite oftentimes they have a better handle on what type of finance they need than, 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 than we do. So the, the, of course, it, it depends very much on the country and the institutional structure. But I would say, as, as, a first, as a first direction, do not take too much from Basel. Don't follow Basel III slavishly or things coming out of the Financial Stability Board and try to find solutions that better suit your own country and try to see if you can use the financial system to somehow break up the control of the handful of powerful families, which is often common in many countries, and the financial system can be a vehicle for that. So we can think about regulations that advance the interests of the country. And I think a lot of developing countries, take Brazil, for example. Mm. Brazil has some of the the PAX system in Brazil, the payment system, is absolutely fantastic. Everybody in the world is looking at how the Brazilians solve the problems. There's a lot of good ideas, and I think perhaps here in Europe, we are too arrogant to learn the lessons from, from other countries. But quite often, because they've been through so much, they have things to teach us rather than the other way around. Um, I tend to agree, and I think the you know, places like Singapore have national debates about um, you know, where where risk lies in the financial system, and they really do have a, uh, a system whereby the private, public and private sectors agree on themselves as to what the strategic direction is. Um, which is say, just come back to say, you know, do we agree then that um, <clears throat> we should split up all the big banks? Is that the one of the ways to achieve the diversity that you're thinking of? Mm, the short answer is no. Because if I'm, I'm, I'm in two HSBCs, are no better than one HSBC. I mean, if you split them up into two or three parts, you still end up with banks that are basically almost carbon copy clones of each other. I, I mean, of course, I mean, the big banks are too big, but splitting them up is a major, major endeavor, and that would take a long time. And while conceptually attractive, <coughs> practically very, very hard. 
So mm -hmm. I, I would start from the other end and just encourage things from the bottom, encourage new companies, new banks to set up shop, solve that problem. Erodes, don't 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 split up the large banks. Just let them lose the competitive advantage because the problem is. And by the way, I so I follow this regulation world closely, and you might have noticed that the insurance companies and asset managers they complain bitterly about regulations. The banks don't. Yeah, this tells me they must like them. So why do the banks like the current setup? Because the fixed cost of regulation is high and can higher. The the more and if it, the higher the fixed cost, the worse things are for the smaller competitors, and the better things are for the largest banks. So regulations at the moment they are really set up to favour the largest banks, not the smallest banks. So I think to, to reverse that would be a very good step forward. Okay. <laughs> um, and I guess the the uh, <clears throat> you mentioned the trilemma um, of trying to manage trying to juggle. Um, some impossible um, policy objectives, I guess, through regulation. Um, where do you think we go next in terms of, you know, given where we are um, and the inflationary pressures we're seeing, um, <coughs> where's the, where's all the, or where's the benefit going to come from um, in the next phase of regulation, um, bearing that trilemma in mind? So, of course, it's hard to second guess the regulators, but we can sort of, just by reading between the lines and what they've been saying recently, is that they are stressing that inflation is going down sharply. So they don't need to raise interest rates anymore. Mm. So they, that's, I mean, I think they're hoping that will happen. I think we all hope that will happen, but assuming they are right, what they are then doing is, and if you look at the nitty gritty of where, where the regulations are, they are, and they have been. I mean, the 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 authorities have actively been looking at the balance sheets of banks over the past few years. I mean, it's not like the Silicon Valley Bank just surprised everybody. Yeah. And I don't think people or the regulators on this side of the Atlantic were not surprised by, by this. But what what they are doing is they are trying to force banks to hedge this risk. And we are seeing much more of that, or dispose of that risk, or they're gonna, or we get more capital against those risks. But we have to keep in mind that all of that is costly, and the economy now is either recessionary or about to hit a recession. And if you increase the cost of financial intermediation, and remember, who's the first entity hit? Well, the first entity hit is SMEs, the small and medium-sized companies. They they bear the brunt of all regulatory reforms. If you follow things in this in this country, after 2008, it was the small British companies that paid the costs of increasing bank capital. That has held back growth in this country over the past decade and a half. And I fear that what we will see in is if in the best scenario. In the best scenario, inflation is not going up, it's been contained. Interest rates will no longer go up, but the fragilities on the balance sheet are still there. We, therefore, we will end up seeing this more costly banking, which then tips us into a recession, which can then lead to the doom loop and all the other attendant dangers. And then the doomsday scenario is interest rates and inflation keeps on going up, but maybe not go there today. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe another session on a, on another day. Um, we're coming to the end now of our time. 
Um, so thank you very much indeed, John, uh, for that. Um, just looking forward um, at our uh, forthcoming events, um, we have some interesting things coming up for you. Um, just after Easter on the 11th of April, Bioenergy with Carbon Capture Storage, a double scammy, um, which if you're interested in you know, the future of um, the planet, uh, you might want to tune in for. Uh, the Science of Aging Well on the 17th of April, Mauritius as a fintech hub on the 18th of April, um, and the launch of the Global Green Finance Index 11 on the 20th of April. So plenty coming up and do keep an eye on our website uh, just to see um, you know, what's coming up and, and join in the conversation. Um, and just a few rounds of thanks uh, to end uh, the session today. Um, first of all, uh, to thank again our sponsors. Um, we are really um, very, very pleased um, that people allow us to um, <coughs> host sessions like this um, and uh, to continue the debate. Um, and thank you to you, the audience, for coming along. Do remember that the recording will be up in about 48 hours, um, available for you to share with your uh, friends and colleagues. Um, but uh, John, many thanks for that. It's been a whistle-stop tour around um, your thoughts on you know, regulation and control and where we sit at the moment. Um, there's a lot more we could have had um, in the discussion and maybe that will be for another time. Normally in such an event I'd throw the floor open for a large round of applause. You'll have to make do with a very small one. Um, and um, just again, many thanks uh, for your contribution this morning. It's been great. Thank you.